time in prayer, just asking God to bless his word. God in heaven, we thank you for the redemption that's in Christ. God, we thank you for your amazing grace, your amazing patience. God, we thank you that you are the God that is able to raise the dead. You've raised us. Dead in our sins and our trespasses. God, just isolated and alienated from you. God, our, we were your enemies. But now, God, blood-bought children. God, we want to live in the joy, in the power of that salvation, in the power of the resurrection. We want to do that, God, through your spirit. God, we pray forgiveness for the times, the moments, this week even, where we've tried to live life in our own strength. God, where we've ignored you, we've ignored your will. Oh God, we've just set that aside for our own agendas. The results of that, God, are always the same. We miss the joy that you have. Oh God, we, we stumble, we fall. God, we ask that you would renew our minds today. You would, you would remind us of your goodness, of your grace. God, we ask that we could today taste and see that you are good, that you're faithful, you're, you're, you're trustworthy. So God, would you please open up our hearts and minds. We, we want to be not hearers only with our ears, but God, we want to be doers of your word. So today, God, we ask, we pray, God, may we know the truth and may the truth set us free. Help us, God, we, we give you the thanks, we give you the praise, in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter five. Reading from verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely 
on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is how Jesus began his teaching, the sermon. You know, many of us have traveled. We've been to places kind of far away, been to other lands. I want you to imagine for just a moment taking a journey to a place where the identifying characteristic of the people is great strength. But it's shrouded. It's shrouded strength with gentleness. The inhabitants there, they have a deep, deep peace. The people of that place, they not only possess such a deep peace, they long to see others possess that peace as well. A purity that marks these people, this purity, it creates almost a tangible aroma from their lives. It's an aroma of light. And the people here, they shine. To call them, to call them happy, it seems way too trite, too superficial, because it's much, much, much deeper than that. Wouldn't you like to go and visit such a place? Wouldn't that be great? You see, these words of Jesus here in Matthew, they are an invitation. But not to visit such a place. They are an invitation to become those people. And this happens only and exclusively through the grace of God. And as we come to this text, it's really important before we, we really unpack the whole of it to stop and ask the question, well, how do we approach and how do we see this text? Is, are these words that Jesus gives us now today, are these a how-to manual? Okay? Like the manual you get from Ikea, how you put together your furniture. Is this instruction for salvation? Or is this, uh, is this, can I say it this way, is this prescriptive? That it's prescribing what we should do to be God's children. It could be that. Or, or is it descriptive? Is it describing what a child of God is and does. Because this is a big fork in the road. Is this, is this prescribing? Is this a to-do list? Or is this the description of this is the result of the grace of God? Friends, this transforms how we look at this text. And it's very important that we stop and we, we grapple with this. In other words, is the text before us, is this text like a ladder? And I use this to climb my way to heaven, towards God, to get his approval. I'm greatly helped in thinking about this text by what Martin Luther wrote many, many years ago. 
concerning the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, he said, Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he or she is a Christian and in a state of grace. Why is that helpful for me? Because many of us are conditioned to come to church, to say hello, to sing, to hear a message that basically says or we receive it as try a little harder. Try a little harder. Is that your Christian life? I'm going to just try to do this a little bit better. This time, I'm going to do it better. This time, I'm going to get it right. I'm going to pick myself up. I'm going, to, I'm going to figure this out. Is that what your Christian experience is all about? Is your relationship with God founded upon what you do? How are you performing? If you're trying hard enough, Friends, Jesus' words here are a portrait of what grace does. It's a portrait of what grace does. It could never be a picture of what you or I can do. You see, these words were spoken to be a spotlight on our soul. Think of it as a a spiritual x-ray. You see, we can be very, very blind when we can be very, very content in our lives with so little. So smug. So deceived. We walk around and think, well, I'm doing pretty well. You and I have a dark, dark capacity and drive to trust in our own righteousness. Don't we? I do. We kind of judge ourselves superficially. I'm not that bad. Actually, I think I'm better than him or her. And that becomes our scale. That becomes our our measuring stick. And I think, you know, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. This message is going to help us. God says, look again. Look deeper. What was that What was that that fire in your heart during your last argument? What kind of thoughts filled your mind the last time your mom or your dad corrected you? Was that the love and grace of God you were living out when you gave your spouse or someone else the silent treatment? Now there's others amongst us, people that have the opposite problem. They're so aware of their failures. They're so aware of what they lack. They know they fall short. They're drowning. They're trying to stay afloat in the dark, in this dark, dark ocean storm of failure and sin. In fact, these people are so introspective, demanding perfection of themselves. Their look is no longer at Jesus. It's only on self. If that's you, you need to look up. Look up. 
Look up and live because this is a portrait of Jesus you want to see. Jesus begins these words. We want to take a look at this a little bit closer, but I think it's so important for us to understand and know that these words are an invitation. See, we begin a wonderful opportunity to come and hear the words of life. In your hands, if you have a Bible, you're holding the message of the King. And I really want to invite you this morning to come and join the disciples. Come, come and walk, walk up the mountainside. And by faith, sit, stand, listen to the sitting Savior there. He's speaking. He's speaking to you and me just as he spoke on that mount 2,000 years ago. And will you listen? Will you hear? Are, are, are your ears open or is your heart prepared? Is, is your mind ready to receive the word of God? How about your heart? Is your heart a place of fertile ground where you've been, you've been walking with Jesus, you've been thinking about him, you've been, you've been seeking his kingdom, his righteousness? Or is your heart, your heart impenetrable, it's unyielding, it's unmoving, it's cold? You see, what we have here, it's a message of the kingdom. Not a kingdom, the kingdom. The kingdom of God. What is the message? We break that down, first and foremost, that there is a king. That king is God, the King Jesus. And that kingdom has a dome, if I can say it that way. It has a realm, a place it's reigning over. What is the realm that the king is reigning over? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Did you catch that? Everything that was created was created for God. It is all his. But in the worst moment of history, mankind rebelled against the king and rejected his rule. You and I cannot blame Adam. You and I cannot blame Eve. It was you and me as surely as it was them. And ever since that day, mankind has been alienated from the king and his kingdom. We've exchanged truth for a lie. We've exchanged his perfect rule for the tyranny of sin and death. But God promised, God promised he would send a redeemer, a savior, to defeat sin and death, to break the chains that bind us, the chains that you and I have chosen. God said, I would break those. I will buy a people for myself. Jesus Christ is that redeemer, and this is his message. 
And so this message of the, the kingdom of heaven is a message that we're going to take a look at and try to get a better idea of what does it mean. One Bible teacher, David Guzik, said this. I like this. Jesus declares what his kingdom is all about. It presents a radically different agenda than the nation of Israel expected from the Messiah. It does not present the political or material blessings of the Messiah's reign. Instead, it expresses the spiritual implications of Jesus' rule in our lives. This great message tells us how we will live when Jesus is our Lord. So taking a quick look at the text, let's see what we can get out of this. Just for, we're going to begin, we're going to get our feet wet. But maybe let me say this before we go further. What is the Sermon on the Mount? It's a picture. It's a portrait. Last week, we looked at a portrait of an elder out of 1 Timothy chapter 3. But what is this a portrait of? Who is it a portrait of? Well, that's a great question. How would you answer this? Is this a portrait of, of you? Is this a portrait of a super saint? Somebody on fire? This is a portrait of God's grace at work. And this is what God wants his children to be. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, all Christians are to live like this. Read the Beatitudes, and there you have a description of what every Christian is to be. It's not merely the description of some exceptional Christians. Our Lord does not say here that he's going to paint a picture of what certain outstanding Christians are going to be and can be in this world It is his description of every single Christian. We are all meant to exemplify everything that is contained in these words. Let's take a look at these words real briefly. Jesus says in verse 1, seeing the crowds. The crowds have been gathering for some time. In chapter 4, we see that Jesus, the people had seen the miracles that Jesus had done and that it had taken them by storm. They saw what Jesus had done. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. Is that important? Well, maybe. Does a mountain have any significance? I mean, if we stop here from the Bible and we look backwards to the Old Testament, we might stop and think, any occurrences, things that happen on mountains that might kind of grab our attention? Noah's Ark that rested on a mountain. Moses. Moses received something up on the mountain, as I recall. 
Abraham? I believe he was up on a mountain. He was asked to go with his son Isaac and sacrifice him. Mountaintops in the Old Testament represent places where God spoke or acted. Think about Moses for a second. Moses came down from the mountaintop with what? The law. He came with the law. And if you think for a minute, if you, if you think what it says in John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We see God's word going forth from a mountain. Moses with the law, but Jesus with grace and truth. That is the message we have here. This is grace and truth. He went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, it says the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he started teaching. Who were the people that came? His disciples. That's, that's not the twelve. The Bible usually recognizes that the 12, the apostles, the, it's more than that. It's not just the 70. It says it's the disciples. Now, some people have taken that contrast from the disciples and the previously, the earlier in the verse 1 in the crowd and said maybe these are two different people. Maybe. Maybe not. We can look elsewhere in the Gospels and we can get an idea of who the disciples were. Most often, we associate that with people who are following Jesus. And I think that's right. But even if we look a little closer, and we look at John chapter 6, for example, we can read and find that there was a time when some of the disciples, they heard the words of Jesus, and they walked away. I think that's important for us to understand that all these people that gathered around Jesus, they had an outward Appearance, an outward desire to want to be followers of Jesus. But I think if we look at the entire text, we see that Jesus' warnings, his words, are going for people that are his, but also those who have an appearance of his. And I think that's a very important part of understanding who this crowd is. You see, this, 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 this sermon, these words of Jesus, they're, they're an invitation. They're a picture. And if we look at these words, we can see some other things, but one of the things we cannot escape is we hear and see warnings. What is it that God's warning? God is warning us that he does not want us to miss salvation. Page ahead with me through the message. We're going to have an overview today. We're going to look more intact in the, in the next few weeks at the verses. But, but just as an overview, the first passage we have is the first 12 verses, the Beatitudes, these blessings. But then as we look at this sermon from 20,000 feet, one of the things that we see is that over and over, um, place amongst the Jesus' teachings are these warnings it starts in verse 20 
Jesus says this, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 6, verse 15, he says, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. A few verses later, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus warns no one can serve two masters because he'll either hate one and love the other or he'll devote, be devoted to the one and despise the other. Chapter 7, another warning comes in. Jesus tells the people, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and hard that leads to eternal life. And those who find it are few. Chapter 7 goes on. Jesus utters perhaps the most sobering words that he ever speaks while on this earth. He says in chapter 7, verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, this, this, this message is given to a people, a bunch of people that came and at least on the outside were interested but by looking at Jesus' words, we can truly see something. There's a warning. Because there's something about us that can be so content with religion. There's something about all of us that can have a contentment with an outside show. And the beautiful thing about this sermon, these words in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, it is a call. For God's light and grace to be shining from the inside out. This is not something, these, these words are not something that we produce. These are not something that we, we make. As we look at these words, we, we see this portrait of grace. We see this portrait of Jesus. How do we respond? I, I hope your response as you read through this text with me over the next weeks is not, hey, yeah. Uh, that's me. I hope as you look at that, you say, wow. This points to shadows in my life. There, there, are, there are places in my life where, where I need to grow. But instead, instead of saying, wow, I need to work harder, I need to try harder, it drives us to Christ. It drives us to the place where we say, I do not have that in me. God, I need you. That is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that Jesus comes out in his words and his words again is the distinction between hearing and doing. And we could make a wrong conclusion from that and say, well, doing is the thing that saves us. No. No, the only way that we are saved is by faith through the grace of God. There is no way anything that we do will save us. But friends, genuine faith is transforming faith. God's grace does not leave us how we are. And the work of his spirit in us transforms us. And when Jesus ends this message, 
he ends it talking about two houses, and you know the parable. It's a parable about two houses that look just alike. You look at them from the outside, they both have a nice blue roof. They both have white stucco on the outside and green shutters. In fact, they could have been by the same builder. But one of them is built on the solid ground. And one of them is built on sand. From the outside, I see two houses. They look identical. But God said, then a storm comes. Jesus says, the contrast between these two houses and everyone who hears these words of of mine and does them. And the one that hears my words and does not do them. Friends, it is not the doing that saves us, but it is the work of God in us that does the doing. And as we go through this message together, I hope this exposes crevices and places in your life where you and I need more of the grace of God. I hope as we go through this letter together, maybe it makes us wake up and realize, wait a second, I am trusting in my own righteousness. I'm very happy with the appearance of a Christian, but maybe I have no idea what this grace is all about. Where do we land? Obviously, as we read through this text, we find that there's at least three categories of people that are hearing this. There's pretenders. There's people that are, 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 are walking through this but it's not real and alive. The pretenders look a lot like the professors. The pretenders don't probably have an idea that this is a fake. But then there's those who possess this. God's grace has come into your heart and life. Friends, we are a work in progress. I, I, don't, I don't put these words out lightly to be able to shake everybody's confidence in the salvation of God. No, that is secure. But what we need, what we need to understand is we need more of God's grace in our life. That a true life that is submitted to God, a true life that is empowered by the Spirit comes with a light that shines from the inside out and it transforms. How do we land this? How do we close? We should pray. We should take our prayer time that we have together and be praying for each other. Oh God, let your grace be at work in our lives. God, I want a hunger and thirst for your righteousness. I lack a brokenheartedness. God, forgive me, I have not been merciful. We ask for God's grace. We ask God to show us our hearts. We also ask God to show us his glory. Because you know what these words are? These are a portrait of Jesus. This is our Savior and our God. The one who is merciful, the one who is brokenhearted, the one who truly is the peacemaker. The one who can make all things new. 
the one who is the solid ground. And we can pray that as we walk through these passages together, that God would transform us. So over the next few months, this is where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at Jesus' words. Maybe can I encourage you, this week, could you spend some time in God's word? Read over these first 12 verses. Think about this, this section that we know as the Beatitudes. We'll start on verses 3 and 4 next week. Be asking yourself, God, is this alive and real in my life? Use this as a, as a guide for prayer. Wow, God, I want to know this blessedness of being brokenhearted. God, I want to hunger and thirst for more than this world, for more than just the next vacation. I want to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Spend some time reflecting, some praying. Read it together as a, as a couple. Read it together as a family. Ask that God would use this in our church's life, that he would transform us from the inside out. We need that. I need that. May it be to God's glory and praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, in your grace and your kindness, have called each of us to be here today. God, I thank you that your word describes salvation with the word today. God, may we know that. May we know your sweet mercy. May we know that you are a refuge of lies. God, may we know that, that you are the refuge for our souls. And God, we who have, who have turned away from that, we who have thought, sought refuge in other things, God, would you be speaking to our hearts and lives? Please, God, give us a hunger and thirst for your kingdom, your righteousness. God, make us a people who are merciful. God, make us a people who are peacemakers. Oh, God, give us the meekness and gentleness of Christ. God, give us broken hearts and let your kingdom come in us and through us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to take a minute to respond and take some time to reflect, but we're going to sing a, take a time to sing a song. So take this time to turn your hearts to the Lord in song.